All right, Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, turning your Bibles there. Colossians chapter 2. The title of our message for this morning is Clinging to the All-Sufficient Christ. Clinging to the All-Sufficient Christ. And if you're able to stand with me, please stand as we read Colossians 2, 16 and following. If you're not able to stand, that's okay. Just follow along as you're seated. That's fine. Colossians 2.16, Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink, or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of the angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with a growth which is from God. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourselves to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men? These are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. You may have a seat. A young man interested in becoming a Christian asked a professing believer or a professing Christian the following question. I am earnest about forsaking the world and following Christ, but I am puzzled about worldly things. What is it I must forsake? A young man asks. To which someone responded, colored clothes for one thing. Get rid of everything in your wardrobe that is not white. Stop sleeping on a soft pillow. Sell your musical instruments for music is of the devil. Don't eat any more white bread. You should probably listen to that one, huh? You cannot, if you are sincere about obeying Christ, take warm baths or shave your head. To shave is to lie against Him who created us, to attempt to improve on His work. The young man, somewhat puzzled, answered, I think I can do all of that. You know, perhaps some of us may hear a response like this, And think, well, that's ridiculous, silly, and unrealistic. I mean, who answers a potential, a person who's interested in Christianity that way? But believe it or not, beloved, many professing believers, maybe not verbatim this way, maybe in in a different way, may respond very similarly, focusing on the do's and don'ts of what it means to be a Christian or not be a Christian. On man made rules and regulations. They focus primarily on externals, externalism, without paying much attention to a person's heart and to the need for heart transformation. We uh, believe that we are to forsake the world if we're going to follow Christ. We know that. Unfortunately, oftentimes we define the world according to our own traditions, our own man-made rules, And we become so fixated upon a person's external behavior and forget about the fact that heart transformation is what is needed in the heart of a person. 
rather than focusing upon a person's need for um, them to see their sin and their state of hopelessness and their need to trust Christ and confess Him as Lord and Savior, we focus on a type of cultural Christianity, we might call it, and pointing people to what being a Christian actually means. This is destructive legalism. This is the destructive danger of legalism. Legalism detracts from Christ, beloved. Legalism reduces and robs Christ of His infinite worth and glory. Legalism diverts our attention away from Jesus in His all-sufficiency and attempts to steal His glory in our Christian experience, even though it cannot do that. Now, I know that there's a huge misunderstanding as to what legalism actually means. You know, some people may look at another Christian, perhaps, who wants to, to be holy and wants to be obedient to the Word of God in their lives. And if they're really focused upon that, we might refer to a person like that as, wow, they're really legalistic. They're really, they really focus on legalistic measures in their own Christianity. Or we might look at a person really committed to doing what is right, another believer, and they're really focused upon honoring the Lord in every area of their life, and we call them legalistic because they want to do what is right. Or, better yet, if you tell another person who's a professing believer, hey, you cannot be living your life that way. Maybe something that they are doing in their lives are going to bring destructive consequences upon them, and we know that, and we see that, and maybe they don't see it. Um, Or maybe they're hurting somebody else. And we might come to them and say, Hey, you are in sin. That is wrong of you to do that. I love you. I care for you. I want you to be walking in obedience to the Word of God. And we might look at a person like that and say, Wow, they are legalistic. They are legalistic. See, many people basically look at a person like that, a person who would encourage another person to walk in obedience to the Lord's commands, and we might look at them as being legalistic. Many times we look at people who encourage us to do what is right, to walk in loving obedience to the Lord. And when they encourage us and come alongside of us, we want to condone and justify our own sins. So what do we do? We label somebody as rigid or legalistic, right? I've, been, I've had relationships like that. You know, this type of mentality is based upon a wrong understanding of justification and sanctification. Those two great doctrines. Justification is all of God declaring a sinner as righteous by faith in Jesus Christ, right? All of the God. It is a one-time event, instantaneous and final. It is not a process. And the ground of our justification is Christ's finished work. Not anything that we do in any way, shape, or form. It is all of God working in the human heart, declaring a sinner righteous by faith in Jesus Christ. Sanctification is a process. A process that requires our active participation as believers. It is the ongoing, continual, and progressive process of becoming like Christ. In sanctification, the Christian by the enabling power of the indwelling Spirit and the guidance of God's Holy Word, is called to actively, aggressively, and continually pursue loving obedience to the Lord. And to not do that is not... Or to do that, to actively pursue the Lord in loving obedience, is not legalism, beloved. 
See, for some people, legalism is rooted in a misunderstanding of these doctrines. And so when we think about legalism, how do we define it? How do we define it? Well, strictly speaking, this is what legalism is. Legalism refers to the pursuit of a right standing with God by either fully or in part observing God's commands. Legalism is salvation by one's human effort. Legalism is salvation by works. It is not grounded in a person's faith in Christ. You can't earn God's favor, but the legalist tells you that they somehow can in their own strength. It is this destructive sin of legalism, beloved, that Paul attacks here in verses 16 and 17. And as we've seen in the previous context in verses 8 through 15, Paul has directed these believers to Christ in all of his sufficiency in contrast to worldly philosophy or worldly thinking. A sort of intellectualism. And he's told them in verses 9 and 10, you are complete in Christ. Christ is all that you need. In verses 11 and 12, you are in union with Christ, in relationship with Christ. You've died, you've been buried, you've been raised in Him. There's this deeper spiritual change that God has done in your life. You don't need ascetic practices. You don't need to be, to be, um, to have your, your spirituality measured by these external things that these false teachers are imposing upon you. You are in relationship with God in Christ Jesus, and you are identified with Him in that relationship in His death, in his burial, in his raising of, of the dead. We also saw in verses 13 through 14 that in Christ we have been forgiven. We saw that in Christ all of those requirements of the law have been nailed to the cross of Christ by faith in him. We are forgiven, completely forgiven. In verse 15, we saw that in Christ we are conquerors with Jesus Christ. And Paul, what Paul is saying here is this is who you are in Christ. Continue to abide in Him and not try to add or supplement to Jesus Christ. Don't succumb to this false teaching. Now in verses 16 through 23, he's going to apply to them what he just said in verses 8 through 15. Therefore, he says in verse 16, in light of what I have just said, there are exhortations that I have for you, Colossians. And there are exhortations, beloved, that I would say to us this morning that we need to give heed to regarding issues such as legalism as well. In light of Christ and His preeminence and who He is and the fact that He's to be our all-sufficient Savior, He's everything that we need. And if you notice in verses 16 through 17, Paul exhorts them against legalism that detracts them from Christ. In verses 18 through 19, he exhorts them against mysticism that is devoid of Christ. Christ is not present in that mysticism. In verses 20 to 23, he exhorts them against asceticism that is detached from Christ. And listen, all of these isms are not or are counter to Christ-centered living. He says in verse 17 that they are the shadow, not the substance of things. He says in verse 19 that they are not holding fast to the head who is Christ. He says that those things, verse 23, have the appearance of wisdom, but they have no power against fleshly indulgence. 
Listen, beginning in chapter 3, verse 1, we're going to dig deep into what Christ-centered living looks like. And all of these things, all of these isms, challenge Christ-centered living, beloved. And they don't lead to heart holiness or loving obedience before the Lord. They don't. They are devoid of that. And so it is so important that we pay attention to what God's Word says here in these verses in particular. Because legalism, beloved, is a very serious, destructive detraction from Christ. Isn't it? It is. And here in verses 16 and 17, we are exhorted to reject legalism and to cling to Christ. We are exhorted to reject legalism and cling to Christ. And the way that Paul does this, that he exhorts us to reject legalism and cling on to Christ, is by means of a serious command and then a definitive verdict that he renders concerning legalism. Alright? So let's look first of all at the serious command in verse 16. Look there. He says, Therefore, no one is to act as your judge. He begins with the word therefore, applying what he has just said in the previous verses concerning Christ. And he commands them and he says, therefore, do not let anyone judge you, is the translation there. Or really, stop letting anyone judge you, is the sense of the verb here. Present tense, continually, you are to be on guard. Stop letting anyone do this. False teachers are judging them. Based upon certain external ritualistic practices. And he's saying, don't let them do this. The sense of the verb here is that something is already in progress here. And they need to not succumb to this. That verb judge there in verse 16 can have a different nuance depending on its context. Okay, This is very important. In some contexts, it is used in a positive manner. Simply meaning to separate or distinguish one thing from another. Okay, It can also be used neutrally, in a neutral way, simply to to mean to reach a decision or decide one thing over another. But in in certain contexts, including this particular context, it is used negatively, and it has the sense of judging or taking someone to task, of harshly criticizing someone or condemning someone. That is its present use here in this particular context. And this is a very important distinction to make as to how he's using this word here. Okay, Um, Some of you um, have had people who have told you things like, Aha! See, I knew that the Bible says, Do not judge. So therefore, you shouldn't be telling me how I need to be living my life, right? I shouldn't be telling you how you live your life. You shouldn't be telling me how I live my life. Who are we to judge one another? Have you heard that? Or, you know, um, maybe a different, in a different sense, worded differently. I remember a few years ago in college, my college ministry, um, college ministry I was a part of, there was a, a good buddy of mine. We used to hang out together a lot. And I remember that we basically found out that he was really kind of living a double lifestyle. And he was uh, in an immoral relationship with a particular girl. She wasn't even a believer. Um, turned out he wasn't a Christian either. He's walked away from the Lord completely. But we met with him, a couple of, uh, of us met with him, and we sat there with him, and with tears and as much compassion as we can talk to him, we said, dude, you cannot be living like that. You cannot be with that girl. It's wrong. It's sin of you to be with her, and it's going to lead to some wrong things. And essentially his response was, was, you know what? You guys are so judgmental. So judgmental. Maybe I can win her to Christ. 
And that was a, kind of his response. He said, that, I can't believe that, that co- the college ministry is so judgmental, full of people like you guys. See, there are people like that, beloved, who are looking to justify their sin, condone their sin, who look at a text like this and say, ah, see, it says, don't judge. And Jesus said it, in fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, didn't he? Do not judge lest you be what? Judged. So why are you telling me how to live my life? We need to be very careful. As Christians, we are called to practice discernment, are we not? Discernment. And what is discernment but the ability to distinguish or decide between what is true from what is false, between what is right from what is wrong, between what is good from what is evil, right? We are called to do that. We are called to do that in our own personal lives, areas of our own life, as well as in the lives of those whom we love, our fellow brethren. We are to be coming alongside of one another and speaking the truth in love to one another, that we might be used by God to potentially save one another from destructive paths. That is a very good thing. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 21 says this, But examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. See, Christians are called to biblical thinking that graciously assesses right or wrong in all areas of life. And we're called to come alongside of one another in those things, right? In contrast, what Paul is talking about, though, here is a sinful kind of judgment. It was the self-righteous judgment that Jesus, by the way, condemned in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, Do not judge lest you be judged. Who was he primarily speaking to? Everybody, but particularly the religious leaders of the day who had added some 600 plus laws to the Mosaic law and even their own interpretational system. Right, And we're imposing upon people those laws and not giving the heart of the law to them. He was confronting them and confronting a sort of judgmental spirit that they had. A self-righteous, unmerciful, and condemnatory disposition toward others. That's what he was confronting when he said that. This is the type of negative, sinful judgment that Paul is talking about here as well. In this case, in the, in the case of the false teachers who are imposing upon these Colossian believers external ritualistic practices that they must adhere to as an add-on supplementing Christ essentially, which is an attack on His sufficiency. And Paul is commanding them very seriously here. He says, stop letting them judge you on these matters. Stop letting them judge you. And if you notice in verse 16, there are five legalistic rituals that they are imposing upon them. Two of them have to do with dietary regulations, and three of them have to do with Jewish calendar observances. He says in verse 16, No one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink. See, they are imposing upon them regulations having to do with basic human consumption, one's eating habits presumably as a test of their spirituality, as a measure of their spirituality as believers. We know that in the Old Testament, um, God gave certain guidelines concerning the clean and the unclean, particularly regarding food and many other things. And some of that was, believe it or not, for personal health as well, just personal hygiene and the health of the Israelites. Also, to distinguish them as a nation from the pagan nations around them. Furthermore, many of these things were also to point to the greater reality of spiritual cleansing that the nation needed ultimately, right? As we saw last week, the whole issue of circumcision pointed ultimately to a need for an internal spiritual circumcision 
the circumcision of Christ. But it seems that these false teachers were imposing upon these believers certain dietary restrictions, including a certain type of asceticism, abstaining from certain foods, and severe treatment of the body as a measure of their spirituality. You know, a couple of years later, Paul writes to Timothy with almost the exact types of issues in Ephesus. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy 4. Just keep your finger there in Colossians. 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1. Paul spoke about some of these things to Timothy that in the last days there would be some who would start to promote some of these things. Chapter 4, verse 1, But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith. And notice, what are they focusing upon? Paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. By means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own consciences with a branding iron. And listen to this, Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods, which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is to be received, if it is received with gratitude. For it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. Verse 6, in pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following, but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. What is Paul telling Timothy? Timothy, don't be fixated upon those external things. Focus on spiritual reality, spiritual discipline. Our Lord Jesus, you know this in the Gospels, look at Mark 7, dealt with this legalism in his day as well. In Mark 7, people focusing on the externals devoid of heart. If you remember, the Lord Jesus addressed legalism in the form of man-made traditions and restrictions and regulations. And here in chapter 7... There are these Pharisees and some of the scribes who are looking at the disciples eating their bread with impure hands, that is, unwashed hands, according to verse 2. And they come after them. They pick a fight with Jesus and his disciples. And Mark gives us, in Mark 7, verse 3, his commentary on the Pharisees of the day in that religious system. He says in verse 3, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands thus observing the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe. That's the idea of tradition there. Passed on from one person to another, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. By the time of Jesus' day, the religious leaders had added some 600 plus laws. 300 and some odd positive commands and over 200 negative commands in addition to the Mosaic law. And that is what Jesus is coming after them about here. That they are driven by their traditions. It isn't that he did not want them to adhere to the law, his father's law, if you will. It was that they were adding to the law of God. And they were living according to tradition. But not only that, notice verse 5. 
The Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat their bread with impure hands? See, they're focusing on all of the external cleanliness and ritualistic practices. And he says to them, in verse 6, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men, neglecting the commandment of God you hold to the tradition of men. He was also saying to them, you are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. See, it was a type of religiosity devoid of heart. And they had added to the law of God. Now, look at verse 14. After he called the crowd to him again, he began saying to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him. But the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples questioned him about the parable. And he said to them, Are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him? Because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach and is eliminated. Thus, he declared all foods clean. Verse 20. And he was saying, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. Notice where Jesus now focuses here. They've lost sight of heart transformation, of heart righteousness, which is ultimately what the law of God was meant to even reveal and expose in us. For from within, out of the heart of man, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. Jesus reminds them, it's not about those external things. It's about your heart condition. It's about what is going on within. Because by the time of Christ, by the time that he walked amongst people, there was this heartless, cold, and arrogant brand of righteousness that was practiced. And Jesus did everything to expose legalism, beloved, in his day. Do you know who killed Jesus from a human perspective? Yes, the Romans, but who accused him? The religious leaders, the legalists, you might say, right? They were the ones that, that ultimately were the ones that accused Jesus from a human perspective. Now, we know that God was sovereign over all of that, but they were the ones that came after Jesus. So he was trying to expose them. And notice in verse 19, he categorically declared all foods clean, right? All foods clean. So they were focusing on these dietary regulations, but also on Jewish calendar observances. Look at verse 16, back in Colossians chapter 2. Verse 16, Or in respect to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath day, he says. All of these refer to certain special Jewish holidays of celebration. A festival refers to the annual Jewish feasts, most likely, like the Passover or the Pentecost, or Pentecost, both significant Jewish days of celebration. The new moon refers to those monthly religious observances regulated by lunar cycles. On the first of the month, both Jews and Gentiles had a special time of religious observance. A Sabbath day 
This is the weekly Jewish observance on the seventh day of the week, a commemoration of God's creation in six literal 24-hour days and His resting on the seventh day, as well as for His people. They were to rest because He had rested on the seventh day as well. Listen, they were championing all of these things as markers of their true spirituality. And beloved, there are people today who champion these kinds of things. Dietary, calendar observances, and many other things. Think about the Seventh-day Adventists, right? Seventh-day Adventists place a strong focus on dietary rules and regulations. Like the Mormons, they prohibit the use of any alcoholic beverages, coffee, tea, and tobacco, right? The committed ones, are those are off-limits for them. Also, they follow certain food restrictions of the Mosaic Law. They abstain from foods such as pork, oysters, clams, crabs, lobster, and rabbits. In fact, most of them are vegetarian. Bummer. Right? Man, think about this, right? For those of you, translation, pork, no carnitas, tacos for you. Okay? Get, get, you get it now? All right. I love carnitas, tacos, no pork meat. Right? No crab or lobster. Man, yikes. They also place a huge emphasis on the Sabbath, on the practice of the Sabbath. It was one of their leaders, now dead, Joseph Bates, who taught that the Sabbath should be observed today since it is the fourth commandment and all of the commandments should be followed. What's interesting is that they forget that there is no command in the New Testament about observing the Sabbath, which was a symbol of the Old Covenant. No explicit command on, on, on uh, observing a Sabbath day. They make such an issue of the observance of the Sabbath that they look down on other denominations who don't practice or celebrate the Sabbath the way that they would celebrate it. Some even go so far as to say that one's salvation is at stake if you do not practice the Sabbath. Which is very interesting because in Acts chapter 20 and verse 7, where we seems like we get a glimpse of a worship service, believers are actually gathering, guess what day of the week? The first day of the week, Acts 20 verse 7, which is in celebration of Christ's resurrection. The Lord's day is on the first day because that's when Jesus rose from the dead, right? It's very interesting. Of course, you can always highlight some of the inconsistencies, Right? of religions or others who champion these kinds of things. Because while they put such a high value on the Sabbath, why don't they observe also the Passover, for instance? Which is equally just as important in the the Old Testament. Say, well, we don't celebrate the Passover because Christ is our Passover and He's come already. And I would say yes, but then the writer of Hebrews, chapter 4, verses 9 through 11, talks about a Sabbath rest for the people of God who are Christians, for believers, a spiritual rest that we now experience in Christ Jesus. If you will, for the believer, those of us who have trusted in Christ, there is a permanent internal spiritual rest that we, that we um, have been rewarded with, beloved, because of our faith in Jesus Christ. See, there are always inconsistencies in these things. So they were imposing these things upon them. You know, they weren't the only church that Paul had to write um, to um, expose some of these wrong doctrines or wrong teachings. Look at Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. Just keep your finger there in Colossians 2. Galatians 4. 
And verse 9 says this, But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? What is he talking about? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. Look at verse 19. My children with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. But I could wish to be present with you now and to change my tone for I am perplexed about you. Paul is very concerned about the Galatian believers because it's circumcision is being imposed upon them and other Jewish festivals and observances and certain aspects of the Mosaic law similar to that in Colossae, right? And he's saying, I am very concerned about you. Look at chapter 5 and verse 1. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. And then he begins to draw out the implications, the serious implications of succumbing to religious ritual outside or apart from Christ. Look at verse 2. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I say to you, or I testify, verse 3, again to every man who receives circumcision, that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You know what Paul is saying there? He's saying this, if you want to trust in circumcision and those kinds of ritualistic practices, as if they are supplementing Christ, as an add-on to Christ, you have a choice to make. There are two paths. Either you are on this path where you are subject to the whole Mosaic law, which stands as one unit together. Or you can go on this path where you are, where the righteousness of Christ is imputed to your account and you have fulfilled the law in Christ. That is what he's saying. Which way do you want it? You want to be trusting in circumcision and these types of things? Or are you going to live by faith in Jesus Christ, empowered by the Spirit of God? Look at verse 4. You have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. For we through the Spirit by faith are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? So Paul says you want to be under certain aspects of the law? Then you are under the whole law. It stands as one unit. Which way do you want it? James 2.10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in how many points? One point, he has become guilty of all of it. Right? All of it. You can't pick and choose which part of the law applies and which part does not. You either adhere to it all or you do not. But how glorious, Right? That for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, who have trusted Christ, we know that Christ is the fulfillment of the law. Amen? The law is holy and righteous and good. It it showed us the, the beautiful, holy character of Almighty God and exposes our sin and our inability to meet and fulfill God's perfect standard so that we would run to His glorious Son, beloved. That we would run to Christ. Matthew five seventeen through 18 says, Jesus says, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. 
Romans 10.4 says that for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. How glorious that is. This does not mean that Christians are lawless, right? We are not lawless. According to 1 Corinthians 9.21, it says that we are under the law of Christ. But how glorious that we are not under the condemnation of the law, beloved. That Christ fulfilled the whole law by His active obedience to His Father's commandments and by His substitutionary death on the cross for sinners who believe in Him. And when you trust Christ as Savior and confess Him as Lord, His righteousness is counted as yours. Amen? We are counted righteous in Christ. So what is Paul's assessment of these things? What is Paul's assessment? That's our second point. Look at verse 17 of Colossians 2. The definitive verdict. The definitive verdict. How does Paul assess all of this? He says in verse 17 that these things are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Dietary restrictions, calendar observances, he says, are a shadow a shadow. And I love these words that he uses, shadow and substance, because they were words used by the philosophers of his day to argue their point. And Paul is stealing from them to make a point of his own. A shadow has no substance, but indicates the existence of mass or of a body, right? No substance. A shadow only exists when light is cast upon something of mass or substance. And what is this point? Paul is saying the regulations and the rituals of the law were not the substance, but the shadow of something coming in the future. They were dimly lit outlines pointing to a greater reality. I love how B.B. Warfield puts it. He says that the Old Testament is like a dimly lit room, which upon the coming of Christ is completely illumined and well lit. Did you hear that? The Old Testament is like a dimly lit room, which upon the coming of Christ is completely illumined and well lit. So in this case, the shadow is important. There were beautiful, necessary pictures, foreshadowings, if you will, of the glorious Christ, the one who was to come. And that's who he's pointing to here. Who is that that is to come? It is Christ, isn't he? The substance, he says, belongs to Christ literally, but the body of Christ. The body which is Christ. Christ is the substance of these things, he's saying. These things were pointing to him. Hebrews uses the same language of shadow. And the point is made there throughout the book of Hebrews that Christ is better than the Mosaic law, which was a mere shadow, including the high priest, the tabernacle, the sacrificial system. All of those things were utterly necessary, utterly beautiful, a reflection of the holiness of God. But they were pointing to also man's sinfulness and our inability to justify ourselves. We needed to look to the son that was coming. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 1 says this, For the law... Since it was only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make perfect those who draw near. High priest, Old Testament sacrificial system, tabernacle, etc. You pointed, you, 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 um, you name it, all pointed to the greater reality who is Jesus Christ beloved. Christ is better. 
is the point of Hebrews. He's better than the Mosaic law. He's better than the old covenant. He's greater than the angels. He is better. He is better than the human high priest. He's the ultimate high priest who is the mediator between God and men. See, the Colossians were allowing these false teachers to stand in judgment of them by these things. And this is why Paul had to remind them in the previous context, in verses 9-15, through of their completeness in Christ. That if God could do all of this in Christ, why even pay attention to these false teachers and these counterfeit external ways of measuring people's spirituality? Paul's sobering verdict on legalism is this. Legalism is a detraction away from Christ. Don't give in. None of these things lead to Christ-centered living nor a right standing before God And it is the same for us, beloved. Our spirituality is not measured by the keeping of such externals. It is not. And we can do the same thing in the church. Even act like that is how what got us into this justification thing in the first place. The very things that we did. See, we become performance-driven. As if God is going to kick us out of His family when we misbehave. How many of you do that, by the way? Right? You have spouses, people living in your home, your kid blows up at you, or something goes wrong, and you kick them out of the family. How many of you do that? Bad, bad. Shame on you if you raise your hand. Right? How many of you have spouses? When your spouse sins against you or blows it, is that it? They're done? It's over? No. Why do we think that that's the way that God deals with us, beloved? That as soon as we mess up, if we are genuinely in Christ, God is going to kick us out of His family. Right? We do this to one another. We do this to one another. You know what we need to be reminded of in return to? The glorious gospel of Jesus, right? The glorious gospel. This is why back in chapters 1 through 2, Paul reminded them of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul essentially says, in light of this gospel, don't let them judge you. Who put them in judgment over you? Isn't there only one judge and lawgiver, says James chapter 4 and verse 2? Who are they to judge you on these things? If I've sent my son to be crushed for you, by belie- and you by believing in him are in union with him, who are they to judge you on these matters? Don't let them do that. We saw last week that God punished his son for your sins, beloved. If you believed in him, all of those requirements of the law, you were in condemnation by the law, right? So was I. And yet God in Christ Jesus has nailed those requirements to the cross. He wiped the slate clean, beloved. Clean. Completely obliterated those requirements. We are complete in relationship with Christ. We are forgiven in Christ. We are conquerors in Christ. Listen, some of us act like we were saved not by our works, but we keep ourselves saved by our works. Right? That is a damning, damning thing in the Christian life, beloved. We weren't saved by our works, and we are not kept by our performance either. If that was the case, we would lose our salvation every single day, right? Every single day. A believer can't lose his or her salvation. You cannot. It is all a work of God. And yet we know that in sanctification, as I said earlier, we are to be actively, aggressively pursuing in the power of the Spirit, holiness and obedience to the Word of God, right? But we know that the indwelling Spirit of God is encouraging us and comforting us and empowering us to walk in the Christian life in obedience. 
How beautiful is that? See, the gospel rehearsed and meditated upon, beloved, joyfully applied, is the perfect safeguard against legalism. We did not earn nor deserve the verdict of acquittal. It is all by the grace of God. Amen? All by the grace of God. And yet, though we have been fully accepted by God in Christ, how quick we are, beloved, to make certain issues a test of people's spirituality in the church, right? Regardless of a heart attitude and disposition, we focus on those externals. And isn't that exactly what Jesus was addressing in His day? The absence of heart worship and external obedience with no heart? He condemned the religious leaders of His day for doing that. And yet, they had been so, so, in Jesus' day, so much a culture of legalism had existed in His day. And He was countering that. You know, that can happen in churches. Just in the same way that Jesus dealt with a culture of legalism in His day. That can happen, beloved, in our churches. A culture of legalism. Where it is not that Christians are telling other Christians that Christ is not sufficient, right? But... They treat one another as if you need to conform to certain things externally so that you would be acceptable in the eyes of other people, namely themselves, right? We do that in churches and we approach one another and we view one another with a type of condemnatory spirit in how we deal with one another based upon not the word of God, but based upon what we think biblical Christianity looks like on the outside. And if you don't measure up to what I think you ought to be like as a believer, then I'm going to judge you and I'm going to look at you in a condemnatory manner. That kind of cultural legalism, beloved, is alive and well. Alive and well in churches. Cultural legalism exists where adherence to man-made rules becomes the measure of a person's spirituality or acceptance by others or other professing believers. Cultural legalism exists where man-made rules or traditions are put on par with the commandments of God in subtle and misleading ways. Cultural legalism exists where people can become so fixated upon making their preferences, listen to me, their preferences authoritative, binding other people's consciences to live by those preferences, irrespective of biblical principle, irrespective of where they're at in their hearts. This happens, beloved. We measure people, spirituality, based upon our externalism. And our preferences, rather than looking to the Word of God and via relationship addressing what's going on in people's hearts, really getting to know people what's going on in the heart, and thereby confronting them with the truth and love. This happens when we become so overly fixated on people's external appearance, right? Without addressing the heart. Listen, in churches, we can make issues of short hair versus long hair, Right? Short hair versus long hair. And that is a measure of people's spirituality. Clean cut versus not clean cut. That must definitely be indicative of what's going on in that guy's heart. If he's clean cut, he's holy. If he's got some beard, he's not holy. If he forgot to shave, he must be in sin, right? Listen, I've heard some of this stuff. All right? I've heard some of this stuff. It's true. No facial hair versus facial hair, right? The thing today now is for guys to have long beard. And I've heard people be critical towards guys with long beard. Oh, wow, look at that. They're just being totally just, just letting their spiritual life go. Really? Come on. 
I've seen clean cut men who are living a double life. Have you met some of those? I'm sure you have. Why do we focus on the externals devoid of the heart? See, we zero in on these types of things, beloved. We make issues over external styles of dress, how people dress. Do you have a, you know what? I'll tell you this. Not a few weeks ago, I went out with my family to lunch and I took off my tie and my shirt and I'm sweating. I'm sure you've noticed that I sweat a lot when I preach, right? You've noticed that? Hey, come on, come on. Don't be like that. You've noticed that I took off my shirt, my tie. We go over to have lunch and I actually met somebody who looks at me and says, Hey, what's up with you taking off your shirt and tie? What's up with that? Tell him, you know, bro, I'm actually just hot. I'm just sweating. You know, that's all. That's all. But it was a big issue for this person. How could I do that? How could I take off my shirt and tie? What, that, what kind of pastor is that? Right? Really? Is that really where we want to go, beloved? We don't want to go there. So we make an issue of external dress rather than focusing on the biblical principle of love shown in modesty and thoughtful dress for both men and women, I might add, right? Rather than focus on that biblical principle, we focus on styles of dress or dress codes. Everyone must wear a suit or tie if you are really, really into biblical Christianity. Otherwise, you're going wayward as a church if you're not wearing suit and tie. Please, please. I know many faithful brothers who preach from pulpits, very conservative, biblical pulpits and churches that don't wear a tie, beloved. And yet, there are others who are rock star pastors who are not wearing a tie, and they're totally fleshly, and they don't preach the Word of God. It's about the heart, beloved, first and foremost. Amen? That's what it's about. Listen, what I'm talking about here is an externalism, right? An externalism devoid of heart, devoid of focusing on what's going on relationally in people's hearts as we get to know people and addressing those issues as potentially indicative of what's going on on the outside. Listen, external appearance is not unimportant, right? It is important. And sometimes what people look like or the types of things that they do on the outside may, or the, how they look rather may be indicative of what's going on in the heart but not always and yet we make it this hard and fast rule and we begin to make judgments of how people look and what that says about their spirituality you know we do this don't we we do this as as parents we understand this as parents that we can focus so much on the outside on the outside and not focusing on what's going on in our kids' hearts, right? We do this. We want them to be obedient on the outside, for them to be adhering to everything that, they're, that, that we've, we've taught them growing up. But you know what happens? I've met some kids that after they leave their home, what happens? They go completely nuts in licentious living. Why? Because parents were not dealing with the heart. And even when we deal with the heart, we know that ultimately salvation is not in our hands as parents, right? But we need to be dealing with what's going on in the core of that person in their hearts, beloved. We see this in our marriages as well, right? You probably have met husbands or wives who, who abandoned their marriage. I've had some of those. Men who went through the motions for years and they were working really hard with their hands, being the breadwinners, and they saw that as their duty before their family. And as soon as the kids are gone, what happens? They jump ship, go after the first girl that they, that they see, and that's it. Their marriage is over. What happened? What happened? 
The heart was not right, beloved. The heart wasn't there. They weren't devoted to God and therefore not devoted to their spouse from the heart. See, we can focus on externalism and not deal with what's going on inside of people's hearts. And that happens in the church, beloved, where people can look so prim and proper on the outside, but be living double lives. And even those people will condemn other people because, hey, they're not measuring up to the way that I live my life. But meanwhile, in secret, they're living a double life. That happens. You know what is an explicit example of this? That no external ritual, rigid asceticism, it doesn't work if you're not dealing with the heart. Roman Catholicism. Think about the monastic lifestyle and how many individuals, priests, went wayward and they were living double lives. Read some church history and you will read about the corruption of the Roman Catholic Church. How did that happen? They had all the parameters on the outside, right? These priests. How in the world was it that they still go after sin and they were even pedophiles, some of them? How does that happen? Because rigid, ascetic lifestyles, beloved, on the outside, devoid of dealing with the heart, does not lead to gospel-transforming change. It doesn't. And so we need to be so, so careful with cultural legalism. It is alive and well. You know, I've had people talk to, confront somebody else about how they lead their family. And call them out on the fact that they don't do formal family devotions every single day. And yet, when I looked at the other family, the guy is seeking to be, to be a spiritual leader, and he's working hard hours, and he's coming and shepherding his wife, and shepherding the kids, and he doesn't do formal family devotions every single day, but he's spiritually leading his kids. And yet this other person is looking at them, they're not measuring up to their own substandards, so therefore, what, what goes on? All of a sudden, they must not be spiritual enough or mature enough, right? That happens, beloved. Can I attack a sacred cow here? If I haven't already, the whole issue of public school versus homeschooling. You know, there are some of you who public school your kids, and that's good. And some of your kids are walking with the Lord. Some of them, uh, unfortunately, are not walking with the Lord, but you public schooled your kids. Maybe you look at people who homeschool their kids now, oh, they're weirdos. Weird. That's going to lead to anti-social behavior in the kids' lives. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. But you know what? It cuts both ways, doesn't it? Because homeschool families now look at public school as if you're handing your, your kid over to Satan automatically. Please. Please. What is the biblical principle of parenting? Shepherd your kids towards Christ. Amen? Shepherd your kids towards Christ. Be actively engaged in disciplining your children and raising them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, pointing them to Christ daily, morning, afternoon, evening, all throughout the day, pointing them, shepherding them spiritually. That is the biblical principle, not the methodology. That doesn't equal homeschool. That doesn't equal public school. Amen? But yet that's what we focus on, beloved. We focus on that. It may be, it may be that for your child or your family, homeschool works best. Great. Don't impose that on another family as if that's what, that's what, that's how they're measured in their faithfulness. Okay. It may be that you decide to public school your kids. Maybe they're in a place maturity wise where one or more of them can be public schooled. Okay. It may be the case that you may decide to do that. Don't look at somebody else who does it differently than you and, and judge them 
and make statements about their spirituality or their maturity because they don't measure up to you and what you've done. It cuts both ways. Neither side in all of these issues is is practicing biblical love and emphasizing biblical principle. We're fixated upon the externals. We're fixated upon methodology without addressing the heart issues, beloved. We do this with food, by the way, too, don't we? Oh my goodness. Lately, in the last few years, huge movement towards only organic. Right? That's okay. Hey, if that's all you can have, organic food, wonderful. Some of us can't afford organic food all the time. If you can afford it, do it. But don't impose that on people as if they eat anything not organic. Oh man, they're bad. If they go to Burger King, pff, my goodness, can't believe that burger that they just had. Fries? Ha! Huh! Fries. They're going to die over fries, right? Be careful, beloved, with that. We can do those things even in those areas of eating. Let's not equate our preferences with biblical principle. See, biblical principles give latitude and liberty in certain gray areas. What you do may look different, how I apply that biblical principle to my life and my family and vice versa. Amen? There's certain freedom and liberty within that. You know, that's the beauty of the body of Christ, right? The beauty of the body of Christ. That we're all different. And given biblical parameters, you flesh out biblical principles different than the way that I do and vice versa. So what is the solution, beloved? What is the solution? Paul said the substance is Christ. Stay centered on Christ. Cling to the great reality that in Him you are complete. You are complete. Stay centered upon Christ. And can I say this? Staying centered on Christ does not lead to libertarianism or to license to sin. Okay? Titus chapter 2 verse 14 says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, instructing them to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present world. The same grace that saves is the same grace that empowers you to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. An understanding of God's grace in Christ Jesus is the great propeller to a life of holiness, loving obedience, and loving servants to God, to God and to others. So on the one hand, we want to be people who are not lawless, right? We don't live lawlessly. We need to walk in obedience to the Word of God. But on the other hand, we must not fall into legalism, beloved, where we impose standards, substandards outside of the Word of God, And we don't focus on people's hearts and where they're at, but we just label people based upon externalism and the way that they look. May God help us to reject legalism, a destructive detraction from the sufficiency of Christ. Amen? I'm going to pray, and then my brother's going to lead us in a song. Father, thank you so much for your word. I'm so thankful to you, Lord, for, Lord, your word that is so clear that calls us and points us to continue to look at your Son, the glorious Christ, to reject legalism and counterfeit religion, even in our own lives, that we be dealing with what's going on in the heart in obedience to your Word and the power of the Spirit. Help us, Lord, to love one another in the right manner, that we would be instrument in the hands of the Redeemer, whereby we point one another to the truth. Guard us, Lord, from thinking that our performance is what keeps us saved or that our externals and what we see on the outside is is the measure of our spirituality, Lord, devoid of heart. 
Help us, Lord, to be focused upon where your spirit has focused us, and that is on what's going on in our hearts in obedience to your word. In Christ's name we pray, amen.